Well, uh, as Rich said, we are in a dating series for those of you who are new. Um, we've been at it. This is the third week out of five. We're doing kind of a series on how we should think about this thing we call thing we call dating. Um, but before we get into uh, into the lesson today, I need to apologize for something that I said last week. When I was illustrating a point, I used the word retarded um, as a synonym for foolish. And, and so I didn't intend any hurt by it at all. I wasn't actually even thinking when I said it. And uh, to my knowledge, nobody was hurt. But my conscience was bothered by that. I spent a lot of time thinking about it that night. And um, I shouldn't have used the word the way I did. It was insensitive. And then everyone was also distracted, I think, when I was trying to make my point. Uh, there was kind of the collective gasp that he just he just said that. He just used that word. So, um, like I said, it was insensitive and distracting. And so the Lord used it to remind me uh, that I need to be purposeful, more purposeful in the way that I use my words um, and careful uh, as I speak from the pulpit and in general. So I just want to put that before you, kind of corporate apology here. And... Um, the Lord is teaching me, so thank you for your patience. Okay, today we're in uh, week three of our dating series. And over the last few weeks, we've learned that the Bible does not command any one particular way to get from singleness to marriage. And that's our definition of dating, going from singleness to marriage in a way that honors Christ. So the Bible doesn't command any one particular way to get there. And Scripture doesn't recognize any immediate stage, uh, other than maybe betrothal, we could say, uh, while you date. But it tells us that you're fundamentally still single, even though even if you're even if you're dating. And we've also learned that the purpose of dating should be to test companionship for marriage. That's our goal. If you want more on that, if you're new, just go back and listen to the last two weeks. And so you're testing if both of you would work well in a marriage. You're testing if you're actually marriage material, meaning are you marriable? Are there qualities there in your life that would um, commend you to another person? Um, or the way we put it last week was we're asking, is testing companionship. Um, is marriage to this person permissible? Is marriage to this person desirable? Do I want to do this? Uh, is marriage to this person wise? And so that's what we mean when we say testing companionship as the purpose of dating. And so today I just want to get right at it and, uh, and help you think through what needs to be in your life before you set out to date. Okay? Bef- what needs to be in your life before you set out on this, this dating venture. And so what I want you to do is sort of use this as, as the, the first quality we're going to talk about are some things that are essential to every believer that need to be there. Essentially, you need to be a believer. You need to be a Christian. And we'll flesh that out. And what does that look like? What does a healthy Christian look like? And then beyond that, what does it look like with guys and with girls? What specific things can we be pursuing and cultivating in our lives now um, that will make us wise marriage choices later? So if you're in a dating relationship, just evaluate. Just say, okay, how is this, what does my life look like? Um, Because we want you to enter into marriage or engagement with full confidence that uh, you're doing it, that you're doing it in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. That's our goal. And so we just want you to evaluate, and no doubt there'll be particular questions uh, that come up out of out of today's lesson. So we can talk about those maybe over lunch. So come find me 
maybe we can get a little power discussion group going at regroup and uh, and talk through some of your questions. So this week's topic is what I've just entitled "Preparing to Date." Preparing to date. Now, as I begin, I want to explain what I don't mean. I don't mean that you have to arrive at some sort of perfected state before you even begin this dating process, or else I wouldn't be married, no one would be married, uh, no one would date. So that's not what I'm saying, and, I, and I'm not putting some sort of high bar out there that is unattainable or that's meant to discourage you. That's not what I mean. Um, what do I mean then? Well, I would argue, and I think Scripture would argue, that there needs to be some measure of proven Christ-like character in your life for you to be able to be confident that dating for marriage is a wise choice for you. So, in other words, there needs to be some proven faithfulness in your life. Evidence of Christ working in you, developing fruit, so that you'll be able to be confident, that's a key word, confident, that dating for marriage is a wise choice. That it's going to be something that the Lord will be pleased with, not something that people around you are, are scratching their heads at or saying, man, maybe you should hold up here. So, the, the proven character is, is part of that. And that's what we're talking about with, with dating preparation or, or preparation to date. And so, we don't need to overcomplicate this either because it's essential, like we've said in weeks before, it's just being a zealous Christian, being a Christian that is submitted to Christ and pursuing Him as your, as your chief aim. Um, that's, that's what it's all about. And so, good Christians make good marriage partners, make good spouses. Um, and that's just really, really pretty basic. So, if you want to boil today's lesson down, that's, that's it. Get after pursuing Christ, knowing Him, and being like Him. Um, and this message is kind of like a, a two-for-one. So, I kind of worked in uh, two things at the same time. I'm, we're going to be talking about preparation. And so, I want you to be looking at yourself and looking at your life. Um, even if you're married, these are still benchmarks for us as we're pursuing marriage. So look at your life. But also, this is going to function in kind of a backdoor way for you know qualities that you would be looking for in someone else, right? So it's going to function in, in both both dynamics here. And just again, just as at the outset, I just want to heavily emphasize what I don't want you walking away from here thinking is. You know, I've got to produce these things on my own and sort of pull yourself up by your bootstraps in, in self-effort. There is effort that should be applied as we grow, but all of it happens in the context of the gospel, like Rich was saying this morning. It's grace, the grace of God in salvation that comes to us and, and, and brings us to Christ, opens our eyes to Him and turns us toward Him now. We now have new desires in the gospel and new power by the Spirit to begin applying the truth and growing progressively. And it is progressive. It's progressive growth. And that's not your justification. That's your sanctification. And Christ is committed to us. If He's saved you, that's because that He chose that. He, he made that happen. And so He's committed to your sanctification and He's committed to your glorification. Those are promises in Scripture. And so what I want us to, as, as we come into this, I think a danger is thinking, man, I just need to check off all these boxes in my life so that I can, I can date because I really want to date. And that's really not, not what I want you to walk away with thinking. I want you to walk away with um, being encouraged by the grace of God in your life and being 
eager to pursue these these qualities for his glory so that you could be um, somebody who is um, going to be a blessing to another person in marriage. Does that make sense? Okay. Let's get after our first question. Uh, I'm laying out some questions for us as we work through this topic of preparing to date. So if you're not convinced already, I hope you are, but if you're not, why should I prepare? So Clay, you're making a big deal of this. I've never thought about this. You know, why should I prepare? Well, again, don't overcomplicate it. Just kind of back out and look at some other areas in your life. In general, we prepare for important things that we want to be ready for. Right? That we realize that we may not yet be ready for. Think about your exams. You prepare for those, I hope. Sometimes you don't, and you reap the consequences. Or think about a career, a preparation for a career. And think specifically about uh, maybe a career like law school, or, or not a career like law school, a career like the law profession, and going to law school. And think about what would happen with the lack of preparation there, right? If you fail to prepare, really in any vocation, but let's say law school, the lack of preparation could have some serious consequences, not just for you, but for the lives of others as well. It has serious consequences, not just for yourself, but for other people. And the same is true of marriage. As you enter into marriage, your responsibilities increase, right? Does everybody agree with that? Do you, does that make sense? Your, your responsibilities increase. Husbands become responsible for their wives as the leader, as the head of the home in the marriage. And as the Lord grants children, he, he's, he's responsible for the entire family. He's responsible to care for, nourish, shepherd his wife. And the wife is responsible to now follow her, follow and help her husband to care for her family and disciple her children. So there's souls entrusted to the woman. And the influences between husband and wife, uh, the, the influence upon each other is just out, just unbelievable. I'm more influenced by my wife than any other person. And I would think she would say the same about me. There's a tremendous amount of influence we bring on each other's lives. And then if you have children, the influence uh, will increase there too, and the responsibility likewise will increase. So there's just a ton of, of extra, and when you enter into marriage, a, a lot of extra responsibility that's, that's coming your way. And this, this increase implies that we need to be aware of that, number one. And so if we're dating, kind of back it up, because dating is to kind of get there, then we need to be thinking about those things in the dating phase, we need to be aware of them, the, the increase, and we need to be preparing for that increase if we desire marriage. Does it make sense? We need to be preparing for, for the increase of responsibility no matter where we're headed. You know, we, we want to be faithful where we're at before the Lord right now so that He can entrust us with more later. So that's a biblical principle. But if we're thinking marriage specific, we want to be Knowing what those, those new responsibilities are going to entail, what our roles are going to be in the marriage, and, and getting after preparing as best we can now, in seed form, what we're going to be doing then. So if we were to answer this question simply, why should I prepare? I would say something like this, you know. Because marriage brings an increase of responsibility, which requires a measure of proven faithfulness. 
requires a measure of proven faithfulness. You think about a job, you think about anything, you know, take it outside of marriage for a minute. You don't entrust more responsibility to someone until they've proven that they can handle what they have now. And that's the same, that's the same thing. And if dating is to get us to marriage, then we need to be evidencing some of those things now. Does that make sense? Okay, bear with me. I'm kind of in the cold sphere. I think Rich gave it to me. No, I know who gave it to me. It was my snotty little son. And I mean that with all level of endearment toward him. Now, we've all, we've all had it. That's actually where they're at this morning. Back at the house. We couldn't justify bringing them to nursery, you know what I mean? So, though, the couple parents in the room are like, thank you. Thank you. Okay, so that's how, we, that's how we would answer this first question. Why should I prepare? Because marriage brings an increase of responsibility, which requires a measure of proven faithfulness. Now, in general then, as a follow-up, what qualities should be present in my life? And I say general because this would apply not just guys or girls, but both. Okay, the, the, both, it applies to both sets here. What qualities should be in my life? And the way I'm approaching this question is by that little statement. We've looked at it before in 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul's talking to the widows, the, the young widows, that had, their husbands had died, and Paul was saying, look, she's free to be married to whomever she wishes. That's what Paul says. She's free to, she's free to be married to whomever she wishes. And then he adds this little phrase, only in the Lord. Meaning, the person she marries needs to be a believer, which is in line with a bigger biblical principle, which is that we shouldn't be unequally yoked, meaning we shouldn't share uh, intimate friendships and relationships, not just marriage, but intimate friendships and relationships with people who are outside the faith. They're antagonistic to Christ. And so um, that's the unequally yoked. And then marriage is sort of a specific thing there that we want to be, we want to be equally yoked. We want, to, we want to come alongside other believers. So the only, the only downside here is lots of times we, we will gloss over that and we'll just say, okay, yeah, they're a believer. They said, they say that they're a follower of Christ. You know, they, they say they're a Christian. And especially in our culture where no one's suffering for the name, right? And it's very easy to be a Christian in modern evangelicalism in the United States or at least call yourself a Christian. And lots of times that definition is, is really off base. And so we need to think that through. So when I say in general what qualities should be in my life, all I'm saying is you need to be what the scriptures say as a, as a, as a growing, regenerate believer. Okay? And so how would, I, how would I frame that up? How should we frame that up? Well, I would say that means you're going to be grown in humility, brokenness, and reverence before God. You're going to be growing in humility... How did I say that? Brokenness or contrition and reverence before God. Now, if you want, you can turn to Isaiah 66. I think, yeah, I've got it up on the screen here. <clears throat> this is a text that's really, really helpful. We're just gonna we're just gonna skim off the top of it, uh, not not do a, a deep dive here. But the Lord comes and He says this in Isaiah 66. He says, "Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool." What is the house that you would build for me, and, and what is the place of my rest? So he, he gives us a grand and glorious vision of himself. And then he says, look in verse 2. 
And all these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. Now, don't miss this contrast. The Lord is high, He's lofty, He's mighty, He's the creator of heaven and earth. He owns everything in the cosmos. That's our God. And He's going to look at one particular kind of person, meaning, this is the one to whom I will look with, with favor, with love, with compassion. I will look. It's He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And that's really just the, the core of a believer. Okay, Somebody who's been born again, brought to faith in Christ, they've been humbled by their sin, They've been genuinely broken and brought to, to biblical repentance. And now they tremble at the word of the Lord. You don't see anything in here about being perfect, do you? This is about being broken. And about knowing where your forgiveness comes from. And about embracing that. And now trembling before the God who, who made you and forgave you and now has restored you. And so... Humility just like, looks like being sensitive to your sin, knowing your frame, knowing your ability to be tempted, hating your sin, knowing that you still do it though. Um, it, it looks like being teachable under others and not, not being you know, unteachable and, and pushing rebuke or any of those things. Humility is something that somebody that is low and, and receives truth. And contrition the same way. And think of, think about brokenness. Like you're, you're broken over your sin. You know that you're bad off. You know that you have no hope in yourself. There's nothing that you can bring to God that would make Him love you. Nothing. Only your sin. That's all you've got. And yet, this kind of person who's, who's humble and broken and contrite is the one that trembles at God's word. Because God offers a word, if we were, to, we were to unpack Isaiah, we would see that God offers a word of, of extreme grace and forgiveness and kindness. And now in the New Covenant, we see, like Isaiah 53 has been fulfilled, the, the reason we can have that with such confidence is because His, His Son has absorbed all of God's wrath and has, has earned the obedience that we need. And all of that obedience is transferred to you when you trust Jesus. And so now as a result of our faith in Him and being born again, genuinely, we now tremble at God's Word. And we desire that trembling is just sort of like a reverence. You know, one of the key characteristics of unbelievers is they don't fear God. And I think if you put it in our context, we could say you're just apathetic toward God. He doesn't enter into your thoughts. You just do what you think is best. You're wise in your own eyes. You just live according to your standards. May, yeah, maybe there's some mixture of Christianity in there and what your parents told you and your experiences, but you really don't fear God. There's just really an apathy. But this person does what? Trembles, reverences, longs for, is hanging on the words of the living God. So, I think that's one of the most helpful, concise little statements about Someone who knows, who knows Yahweh, knows the living God, knows Christ, I think there is in Scripture. Just a one-liner right there. Humble, contrite, and trembles at my word. And use those as sort of your categories as you look at your own life. And I know that in college, you're kind of in transition lots of times. You're kind of coming out from under the faith of your parents. You're embracing it for yourself. Um, maybe you didn't know the Lord until college. 
And so you're, you're figuring out all of this stuff on your own. So if you have questions about the gospel, um, please come talk to us. We'd, we'd love to help kind of guide you through this. If you're wondering whether or not these qualities are in your life, don't wait. So find one of us leaders who can disciple you and help you learn to trust Christ and then, and then see these qualities being born out in your, in your life. And there's no shame in that. There's no shame in, in kind of professing Jesus and seeing, man, I, I really don't have the, the evidences of what the Scripture is saying should be in my life. And so, because when we come to Christ... He'll begin to cultivate these things in us as we humble ourselves, really, and come to Him in, in faith and believe the gospel. So, I just want to start off with that. Uh, in general, you're looking for those kinds of qualities in your life up front. And one other thing, sorry, I forgot, about, I forgot I put that in there. I kind of skipped that on my notes. This is another way of saying the same thing, just on the other side of the coin. From Titus 2, we might call it a zealous devotion to Christ. Now, again, don't hear me saying perfection. That's not in Paul's mind in Titus 2. But what Paul is after is, is seeing people who are zealously devoted to the Lord. Because he saved you. So, look at this text. <clears throat> Paul says, you know, essentially in the first, in the beginning of chapter 2, he's saying, look, Younger guys should live like this. Younger women should live like this. Older women should do this. Older men should do this. Titus, you should be an example. No, 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 no. He's kind of going through how each of the different groups in the in the Cretan church should be living. And then he tells why in verse 11. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, meaning Christ has come, and He's bringing salvation for all people, not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles. So this salvation has come. The grace of God has appeared. And this grace is training us, in verse 12, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Hear that? So if you've experienced the grace of God, truly, the same saving grace that you experience is also training you. Like, Christ doesn't... He won't save someone and then leave them in their sin. That would imply He's not... A holistic Savior, right? So when Jesus saves, He sanctifies. He, he starts cultivating in a believer the ability and the wisdom, the know-how, to say no to ungodliness and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So we're looking for that, okay, in our lives. We're looking for, okay, we, we want to be after that. We want to be cultivating that. Waiting for our blessed hope, verse 13, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us... Notice this. He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. So that's sort of the negative side. He gave Himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. And the positive side, to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. So if you've believed in Jesus, you've been redeemed and purified. You may not feel like it, but you have. That's the reality. And He's done that for a purpose, that you would be zealous for good works. And he is going to make sure that gets born out in your life. One way or another. Okay? Because he's committed to you. So, I'm not talking about perfection at all. And as you, we would see, the kind of commands that Paul gives these believers in this letter are basic. You know, they're not... It's not some higher, higher level of spirituality. It's just, if we were to keep going in this text, we would see, you know, he's like, man, you used to be like this. 
living in all manner of sin, but now the Lord saved you. Now you're supposed to live, now you need to live like this for His glory in the world, in the midst of this evil world. And so, he really works that out in, in chapter 3 a lot more substantially. So all I'm, all I'm pointing out here is that <clears throat> in your life, you're looking for humility, you're looking for brokenness, reverence, and then also devotion to the Christ who saved you. That's the evidence of a genuine believer. And everything else will flow out of that. Everything. So if that's... If you have questions about that, please come. Please come talk to us. And we will gladly help you work through that. This may be, this may be the, the, the means through which the Lord is, is bringing you to Himself. Um, a message like this. So that brings us to our third question. If we can get more particular. As a man, then, what specific qualities should be in seed form in my life? Now, the, the way I phrase the question is Intentional. As a man, what specific qualities should be in seed form in my life? Meaning that there's not going to be some great giant fruit tree. It's going to be a little sapling growing up. Because if you're young in the faith, if you're young in the faith. You can't, you don't have the years in, in you, behind you, where the Lord can use trials and failure and just multiple things in your life to really beautify and prune and grow that fruit. So, we're looking for stuff in seed form. And so, just full disclosure, where I'm getting, what I'm about to say next, is I went over and said, okay, what are the, some of the specific things that the Bible says about husbands? And it worked backwards. Does it make sense? And say, alright, so how could we, even without a wife or a girlfriend or any of that stuff, how could we be cultivating these things in our lives now? So, first thing I would say is self-sacrificing love. That needs to be in your life as a man. Not just for marriage, but just as a man. And women too, for that matter. But men, specifically, self-sacrificing love. Flip over to Ephesians 5. This is sort of the paramount text. So if... You're a guy and you're either dating or you're wanting to and you don't know this passage, star it and make this your meditation. Ephesians 5.25. Again, there's a lot we can say about the context of this passage, but we're not, just for the sake of time. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And, what's the next word? Gave himself up for her. So, the pattern, the measure with which a husband is to love his wife, the, the pattern for that is how Christ loved the church. Now that should floor every dude in here. Okay? As we're thinking about this. Because you just start thinking about how Christ loves the church. And make that your, your paradigm for then how you would love a, a wife one day and how you would love the believers in general. And in particular, the one quality he draws out and all the things he could draw out is the, the sacrificial nature of the love of Christ for the good of the church. And he goes on to say what, that, what Jesus accomplished. He said, He gave Himself that He might sanctify her 
having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. She might be a pure bride. So Christ, at great cost to himself, dies so that this is accomplished. That's the paradigm for the husband. We die so that our wife might grow. We die for her good. Okay? And so we back that out. I want you to think through, are you practicing laying down your life for the welfare of others in the body? Is that on your radar? Are you cultivating that in your life in specific ways that you could articulate? And that's motivating you to go lay your life down. Something that costs you something as a man. How are you cutting at the root of the self-orientation of your heart? Because that's what marriage is about. It's about, it's not about leadership and this. It's about being low and dying for the good of another. That's it. And there's joy in there. And it sounds like, whoa, golly, golly, that's intense. But there is, there's joy in that because just look at Jesus. Again, he's our measure. So how are you cutting at the root of the self-orientation of your heart? And how are you learning to die to yourself for the good of others around you? If you're not doing this in your life right now, you will not do it in a marriage. Ladies, if he is not doing this now, he will not do it for you in marriage after he gets the ring on his finger. So don't be deceived by that. Marriage changes absolutely nothing except your status. That's it. So we want to be looking for patterns in our life. Not perfection. Patterns. Growing patterns. Brokenness when it's not happening. Brokenness when you see your self-orientation, right? The humility, contrition, trembling. We want to see those things. And we want to be targeting specific ways of, of, of how we're learning to die, for our, die to ourselves for the good of others. So sacrificial love is the first quality. We've got to move quickly here. Pure fidelity is the second quality. Pure fidelity. A lot of texts we could go to, but First um, Timothy 5.2, we won't turn there. All Paul is saying in that text to the young men or actually to, to Timothy in that text, is to, that he is to treat the people in the church as family, older women as mothers, older, you know, older men as fathers. And he gets to the younger women, and he says, treat them with all purity. He doesn't just say purity. <laughs> that, would have, that would have been sufficient. He said, treat them with all purity. Like, don't let there be any question about your motives. Don't let there be any question about your intentions. Treat them with all purity as you would your own sister. And so that's, that's steep. So there's the pure element and then the fidelity. I want to bring that word in there, meaning there's a, there's a commitment to fidelity kind of has the idea of a, of a, uh, it's, it's converse would be sort of cheating or adultery. Fidelity means you're committed to one person exclusively. And, so there needs to be a pure fidelity that's being cultivated in your heart. And there's a Hebrews 13, this passage talks about keeping the marriage bed undefiled. I mean, there's, there's not other, other people that are coming into that marriage bed. It's, it, this is a sacred place for you and your wife. Marriage is sacred 
It's for her. You think about the qualities for an elder. He's to be a one-woman kind of man, meaning he's to be exclusively devoted to his wife. Not just that he can't be divorced. I mean, that's we could talk about that, but it means he's exclusively devoted to, to his wife. Um, so, I would say pure fidelity needs to be being cultivated in a, in a young man's heart. And a man that's devoted to the purity of his wife will be devoted to the purity of his own heart. You cannot lead your wife in purity if you do not lead yourself in purity from your heart. Men. Pornography needs to be radically repented of and especially before dating. Can you imagine picking up a man's daughter and explaining to him that she's only one of the other ladies in your life that you hope to gain pleasure from this week? That's the reality. It's a lie that marriage will fix this or help the porn problem. Because porn isn't just physiological. It's not some physiological thing that you're you're dealing with and so you're going to porn. It's a moral problem. It's a pride problem in your heart and it's pervasive in the church. Your self-indulgent heart doesn't change just because you have a wedding ring. And ladies, don't be naive here. The issue is so serious to the Lord because He knows it will ruin a marriage and it will ruin the purity of a church if if these kinds of things aren't repented of. But a man that's devoted to purity is one who is renewing his own mind in these matters, in his heart, He treats the women in his church not as objects for his pleasure, but as sisters in Christ. And as a sister, think about how you treat your own sister. He respects them. He defends their purity. He helps to protect them. He guards their reputation and does good to them. Men, aspire to this. Don't trade it for the junk of pornography. I'm begging you. I hate that sin because I see how it destroys everything in its way. And so you, get, you need to be men of, of pure fidelity. If you need help there, please come talk to us. Act on that. And last thing I would say here for the men, and it's okay that we're spending more time with the men, is men, you need to have, I, this is awkward saying it like this, I couldn't think of a better way, but a compelling followability. It's a mouthful. All I'm saying is just you need to live a life that's increasingly worth following. You need to lead a, live a life that's increasingly worth following. Everybody wants leadership. Everybody wants influence. But nobody wants to live the life that's worth it. And so, don't waste your time, guys. Know what you're about. Know that you're following Christ. Have a plan. Work the plan. Be smart. Be wise with the time you have. Be working to increase fruit. Be identifying idols in your heart. Be working on repenting of those things. See clearly so that you can help somebody that's following you. Like your wife. Because she is under your care whenever you come into marriage. So your wife has a question. She comes to you. What are you going to do? You're going to just look at her like, I don't know what to do. You know? I mean, maybe maybe that's where you start. I don't know. Let's, Let's go find help. So maybe that's the way you initiate that, right? But as a man, you will be responsible for those things. So you've got to live a life that's compelling. Make it easy for a woman to want to follow you, man. Don't be passive. And don't just have a meandering kind of idea of you don't really know what you're doing or what you're about or what your convictions are.
And ladies, find a man who's worth following, right? Who's living their lives that way. So that, that just, we can flush all these out way more, but that's, those are kind of the three, in my mind, if I had a son, which I do, if he was your age. <laughs> yeah, right. He's still like a little guy running around, you know. But if he was your age, man, these are things I want to be investing in him that uh, he can follow. So with the Lord's blessing. Number four. So we've hammered the guys, right? Uh, I'm not going to hammer the ladies. Um, as a woman, what specific qualities should be in seed form uh, in my life? Again, the seed form is the issue here. And in the same way with the, with the guys, I'm going to start with, with the, the wife's complementary role and work backwards. Don't worry, I'm not going to say that all the ladies should submit to all the guys in the room. That's not the way it works, okay? Okay, turn over to 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. I just want to read this, this text, <laughs> draw out a few things. First Peter 3, 1 is instructions to the wives here. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. That's the submission word group there. Be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see, key in, your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear. Like, don't, don't let it be merely external, but let your adorning, focus on this, be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty, imperishable beauty, of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, there's a lot in this text that we could unpack. Um, But I'm just going to grab a few things here that I saw. And I'll kind of start from the most core, most fundamental to outward here. So a wife is called to, to follow, submit to her husband, even if he's an unbeliever in this text. And it has her life, her influence is very powerful. She could even bring him to faith in Christ just by her conduct, it says. And so the, the role of a wife is she is she's equal in essence as an image bearer. It's not that she's a lesser person, but in the marriage she functions as in a subordinate role. Just like in a job, I function in a subordinate role. And just like Christ subordinates to the Father, um, there's all this, and we subordinate to the government, to our elders. There's those relationships in God's created order. And in a marriage, a wife voluntarily comes under that, <clears throat> the leadership of her husband. And so, if we're going to start at the core here, I would say, so where does that come from? That's a hard, that's a hard thing for the ladies, just in general. You're submitting now to a sinful man who's not perfect, and in this case, an unbeliever. So how do the, how do that how does that happen in in a, the life of a woman? The first quality I would say here is that she has confident hope. She has confident hope, and that's that's a little phrase that's tucked away here in the text, in verse five. 
It says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. So so the women of old, like Sarah, he mentions her, her hope was fixed in God. Meaning she knew her God intimately. Knew that he was in the, the supreme authority over the universe and her husband. Knew that he, her God controls her husband. And so her hope is fixed in that God. Knowing him, being forgiven by him, living to please him. And her God has said, okay, bring yourself, arrange yourself underneath the leadership of, of your husband. And trust me. Because I will work for your good in the midst of this, even if he's an unbeliever. So you're not going to get there. You're not going to do that if you don't hope in God. There's no ability to submit yourself to to another person, to a husband who's very different from you, um, has particular weaknesses that you don't have. There's no ability to do that unless you hope in God. And so we want to be cultivating that hope in God. So do you know your God? Do you know what He's like? Do you know what He's promised? Do you know His character? Do you know how to walk with Him? Do you pray? Just all those basic things. Do you have a living, active relationship with the Lord? Are you hoping in Him? Is He your anchor in times of fear and difficulty? Confident hope, and that's where these other things are going to flow from, which would be contented gentleness. Contented gentleness. So, that's something that you can be cultivating now that's an outflow of your hope in God. Meaning that there's a contentment in your life, that you're, you trust God in the circumstances. Maybe you don't like your circumstances, but you trust God in those circumstances, and you're gentle as you, as you interact with other people in that. This gentle and quiet spirit doesn't mean that you're mute, and you don't say anything, and you're just a doormat. Gentle and quiet spirit means that you have humbled yourself before your God, and you're trusting Him, and so you know that whatever happens is going to be alright, because you're trusting God. And so, you don't have to manipulate people. You don't have to control people. You don't have to domineer people. You don't have to worry about getting your way because you're afraid. Because you hope in God. That's gentleness. That's, that's the way that, 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 that ladies can respond with gentleness. And then the last thing here that we'll say that's flowing out of this contented gentleness is a trustworthy diligence. A trustworthy diligence in life. Now, if we're kind of springboarding off 1 Peter 3 here, notice that the very last statement here in verse 6, he says, you're her children if you do good and do not fear anything that's frightening. Notice there's a doing good. There's an action oriented to the life of this, of this woman. She's getting after it. She's doing good. And if you, I just reread Proverbs 31 this week, just kind of thinking through this lesson. And you could summarize 90% of Proverbs 31 with this word diligence. The woman is diligent in Proverbs 31. I mean, she like, she is getting after preparing for her family. She's working hard. She's buying fields. She's selling them. She's making a profit. I mean, and, and it's all geared toward the good of her family and the glory of her husband. It's awesome. I mean, just this, this, the, the way that this woman is competent. She's working hard. But you could summarize it all like that. So ladies, right now, are you getting after this, this diligence in your life where you don't waste time, you don't flit it around on social media, you're not worried about the, the Pinterest everything. Like, are you getting after having a productive, fruitful life for the good of others? And just, you know, Proverbs 31 just kind of lays that out for you. 
And so, man, that is a blessing in a marriage. Having a hard-working wife. Because it's hard work. <laughs> Multiple levels. It's a lot harder than, honestly, it's a lot harder than what I do. Lots of the time. And so, um, and the fruitfulness that, that the marriage has as a result of both of them working together is beautiful and glorious. And it's shared fruit from that, that companionship as they, as they work that out. And so... And all I'll say with that, too, is the reason I put trustworthy in front of this diligent word is because it says in Proverbs 31, one of the sweetest things, I think, in that that chapter, it says that the heart of her husband trusts in her. The very core of who who the husband is has full confidence in his wife. That is awesome. And that comes from her diligence, her fear of the Lord that's, that's being worked out there. So, I know we're way over time. Let me answer my last question so we don't have to come back and answer one more question last, next week. And I'll, this is take like 30 seconds. When am I ready to date? Okay, that's the big question. When would Clay say, no, I'm just kidding. When am I ready to date? Well, the one way you can answer this, I think it would be most helpful, is I would just say this. Listen to your authorities. Listen to your parents, your elders, and your disciples as they direct you in the way of wisdom. Because the Lord works through these wise authority structures for our good. And all of them are important. So lean heavily upon them for their assessment because it's so hard to assess ourselves. And this is not just for marriage. I'm going into ministry. I'm in ministry. As I was going into ministry, I sat before the elders and said, You tell me if you think I'm cut out for this. If you don't, I'm going to go do something different. If you do, I'll do it. I put myself fully at their disposal because I knew I couldn't assess myself. And so ask these kinds of questions to your people that are around you in this that are wiser than you. Do you think it would be a good and wise decision for me to date now? Why or why not? If I were your son or daughter, if this is your disciple or mentor, how would you advise me in this, in this area? Where am I weak that you've observed? Where do I need to grow? What areas do you see growth in? How, you know, is there, is there pattern growth in these areas that would, you know, be commendable? Questions like that and more you could ask of your, your disciples. So, when you're confident from your authorities and from Scripture that dating is a wise decision when it's pleasing to the Lord, get after it, right? If, if marriage is a desire of yours, especially the guys, you know, marriage, if ladies, if you want to get after it, just come talk to me. We'll make it happen, okay? No shame there, all right? But get after it. If, if you're confident from, from your mentors and those kinds of things, I'm all about trying to see that fulfilled for you. And it's not about an age. That's what we think. It's about an age. I mean, if I can get to this age, then I can date. I kind of get the rite of passage. It's not about that. It's about character, right? Maturity, growth. That's what it's about. And so just picture a guy gets in a boat and is trying to row and they're trying to get to the other side and you know, he jumps in the boat, young guy, and he starts rowing, 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 rowing. He's developing muscle pretty quickly. Imagine an old dude that's been in the boat for 50 years, but he's never rowed. Just because you've been in the boat and you haven't rowed doesn't mean you have muscle, right? And a young guy can be increasing that muscle, or a young lady can be increasing that spiritual muscle, so to speak, as they get after it. So if you're young, you're a freshman in college, and you've got these qualities, you're a high schooler, and you've got these qualities, and you desire marriage, I mean, I know it's kind of radical, but okay, like, let's not waste time. Let's get after it. But just because you're 25, 30, 
you don't have any of these qualities, you know, I'm not going to endorse that, you know, as a, as a pastoral, as your, as your shepherd. So, um, it's about character. That's the linchpin that we're looking at. And, and, and the ball's in your court in terms of how quickly and how zealously you're pursuing that. Does it make sense? Okay. Well, that's, that's the gist of session three, preparing to date. I've taken way too much time. So let's pray.